All right, good morning. My name is Derek, one of the pastors here, and it's good to see y'all. Um, maybe you've heard some of these stories or you've been with somebody on their deathbed. Um, there was one older believer who uh, I think they were alone at home and, and they called 911. I don't remember what it was, heart attack or something along those lines. And this was their, you know, their last minutes and they're talking to the operator, uh, but they had their, their faculties, their mind was working and, and it was... And as they were talking, they were at peace. You know, they were comfortable. Things were good. And the last words they said were, wow. And then that was it. Now, I've heard other stories and seen those on their deathbed, people who claim to be believers, scared to death, right? They're dying, but they're clinging to life, tearful, afraid, worried, no assurance of what's going to happen next, now, there's something about being a believer that we should have this assurance. I mean, that, that song we were just singing there, that assurance that when we get to that point, we know what's coming next. We're confident by what's going to happen. We can be secure and faithful here knowing what's going to happen. And so here's the question I want to ask you. How confident are you in your eternal salvation? How confident are you? And if I were to ask you why you're maybe, you're, yes, absolutely, and I say why, how would you answer that? You know, a lot of people answer because I grew up in church or because I go to church or my parents were Christians or whatever it is. Um, I'm a, basically a good person. That's probably the most popular American answer, right? Are you going to heaven? Why? I'm a good person. No, you're not. <laughs> Scripture makes, I mean, it makes clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, so that's uh, not the right answer. Or you may answer, I'm going to heaven because I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That sounds like a really good answer. But James gives us this crazy warning in his book. And remember, James is Jesus' half-brother. Um, and he says this in James 2.19, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Uh, the book of James is kind of in your face a little bit because he's saying, Hey, all you people claim to believe, and you believe God is one, so you have right belief, that's good. Well, guess what? The demons also have right belief, but they're not saved, right? It, it scares them to death. They're shuddering. So how can we have confidence in our salvation? You know, I've heard some believers say, I don't know. We'll see when I get there. I'm like, oh my goodness, that must be miserable, right? To go through life not knowing what's going to happen is miserable. John, we're in 1 John, so go ahead and turn to 1 John. Um, I hope you have a Bible. If you don't, there's one in the seat in front of you, and we're going to be on page 1,123 in those Bibles. But one of John's reasons for writing is to give assurance so that we can know. We can look at our lives, and we can know for sure that we are saved. We are in God's family, and what comes next is eternity with him. He wants us to have this confidence. Now, last week... Uh, we were looking at walking in the light. So last week we asked the question, why is it that some believers seem to enjoy the abundant life and others don't? And we kind of concluded it comes down to walking in the light, which isn't go obey. You know, a lot of times we think that's what religion is, just go, go be good. But that's not it. Walking in the light is walking in an abiding relationship with Jesus, exposing your things, yourself to the things God wants to use to change us. And we put kind of three things in those categories of one, Attending church, right? Coming to a place where we worship, uh, hear the word preached and get to sing. We're, we're worshiping beings. We're made to do this. The second is time in God's word, right? 
that we want to spend time in God's word, that is exposing ourselves to the light. But then the third one, which is maybe the hardest of asking ourselves the hard questions, being open and willing to be changed. And it's those people that are walking in the light that really do get to enjoy this abundant life. But it leads naturally to the question, can a believer walk in darkness through their life? It leads to the question, okay, I look at my life and I'm not, I don't see those things. If I'm honest, I'm walking in darkness, right? I'm, I'm not doing those things consistently. Uh, sin really does typify my life. Am I a true believer? And so John naturally, I think, moves from what we looked at last week, walking in the light, to answering that question. And his goal is to give assurance. That's his goal. The goal is that we will look at it and go, oh, right? We get a little worried that he wants us to have assurance in our salvation. And so this is our big question. How can I be confident in my salvation? Now, there's a truth we talked about last week. There is a difference between relationship and fellowship. And this is carried out over the next couple weeks even, that we can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus did. That is when we, our, our moment of salvation, which theologically would be justification, right? When we believe, we confess our sins, right? Justified rela or, uh, relationship, or yeah, relationship. Then to actually experience it moves to fellowship. Again, abiding, walking in the light. And our big question today, how can I be confident in my salvation? Look at 1 John 2. We're going to start with just the two, first two verses. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So how can a person be assured of their eternal salvation? Here's the first thing. Right belief about Jesus as the eternal son of God who took on a body, died, and rose from the dead. That's the first thing, right? Go back to 1 John 1. We'll leave that up there for a minute. But 1 John 1, right at the beginning, John begins. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So here's the first, right? At the beginning, I asked, maybe if, if you answer, I'm going to heaven because I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, right answer, yes. That, that's where it begins. Right belief in who Jesus is and what he did. Absolutely. And part of that we see in 1 John 2, 2, where it says he is the propitiation for our sins. That's a weird word, right? What is propitiation? We believe, and this is part of right belief, we believe that Jesus is our propitiation, which means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. That is something important that we need to believe about Jesus, right? That God is not just loving, right? That's really popular in the American church. God is love, and so he's okay with everything, right? Well, that's actually not loving. If God was just loving without the justice part, there would be no need for propitiation. There would be no need to appease God's wrath. God's wrath is poured out on the ungodly against sin because we are all guilty. And so Jesus says here is our 
propitiation. He was the sacrifice that was good enough to cover all of our sins, right? And all of whose sins? It says the sins of the world. Meaning Jesus' sacrifice is good for all. Does that mean everybody will be saved? No, absolutely not. His sacrifice is good enough for everybody. Anybody could be saved, but not everybody will be saved. You have to actually believe the right belief. Now, this is where it starts, right? That he is the propitiation completely, not Jesus and something else. This is where a lot of times uh, the Catholic Church especially, but other churches, they add some things. Yeah, Jesus, his death and resurrection, but then you also need to do this and this and this. And, and it helps with your salvation. Well, no, Jesus is enough, 100%. We must understand that. That no one is outside the possibility of salvation. So that's the first thing we need to know, right? This isn't universalism. Right belief, first. Second, what is the second thing we should have to give us assurance of salvation? Number two is genuine repentance is evidence of salvation. Look back at, at 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance. Now, we can argue, and theologians do, where does repentance fit? Does repentance fit before salvation as a requirement for salvation? If so, is that a work? Or does repentance happen after you're saved and sin is really, and then you repent? It doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, really, we can debate that, but what we do know is repentance is always part of salvation, right? When Peter preached his first sermon, and the rest of the apostles were speaking in other languages and people were hearing it. Thousands were saying, they said, what do we do? They said, repent and be baptized. So repentance is always part of salvation. Repentance is acknowledging that sin is sin, recognizing that I am a sinner, and then turning to go God's way. It doesn't mean perfection, but it is a turning. This is, again, this is evidence that you're saved. Do you have a turning? Or... Did you go through it and you, you, maybe you heard the gospel, you're like, yeah, I believe that, but your life never changed at all? You just kept going? That's not repentance. Repentance is a change, a move, right? Proverbs 28, 13 says it this way. He who conceals transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. If we walk in the light, going back to last, if we walk in the light, God will reveal sin we say, I agree with you, God. We repent and turn. This happens at salvation, but it also happens over and over, right? Christians live lives of repentance because we're not perfect yet. So here's a test for you. Have you repented? Have you repented? Or do you, you know, read scripture and you're like, mm, I don't like that part, right? W whatever it is, it, there's something clear here and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go my own way. Or you're going to read it and go, I don't believe that part is true. You know, it, it, it was translated wrong or whatever, all these excuses. There's some evidence there of not real repentance if you put yourself in judgment over God's word and walking in disobedience to it. And so that leads to the next one. Look at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Why did I say at the beginning that John wants to give us assurance of salvation? That's what he's saying right here. We know. He says that several times, right? We know. And by this we know we have come to know him. He wants us to know that we are saved. And what is this one? Number three. Walking in obedience to God's commands is evidence of true faith. Walking in obedience. When you look at your life, do I see obedience in my life? Now, we got to be careful. We are not saved by good works, right? We can quickly lean toward legalism that we do all these things to be saved. No, no. We do these things, but it is evidence of a true heart change. It is evidence of true salvation. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right, is a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. And then Ephesians 2.10, the next verse, right, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So good works are part of the Christian's life that God has prepared, and it's evident. So if you see that in your life, if you see a desire to obey That is a big sign that you have the Holy Spirit, that you are saved, walking in obedience. James, again, James 2.17, he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I really like the book of James. (laughs) James is kind of blunt, but he says, faith without works is dead. He says, you say you believe, you do all this stuff, but you, you ignore those in need, right? You don't do anything. Your faith is dead. And people argue what that means, right? It's a dead faith meaning useless. Absolutely, that's true. A dead faith meaning not a faith at all. And here is kind of the danger and the warning for us. Because many, Jesus says, many will end up standing before Jesus at the end saying, Jesus, didn't we do all these things in your name? He said, depart from me. I never knew you. Meaning there are people in the churches who think they're saved but are not, right? And so here he's saying, A big evidence is walking in obedience. Obedience as a pattern of life gives evidence that a person is born again. I think that's really important. Obedience as a pattern of life, not perfection, right? Not perfection. Uh, He makes it very clear here in in, in 1 John, we are probably going to sin, right? Look at verse 10, back uh, 1 John 1.10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word not, is not in us. Meaning, it's okay. We can confess our sin. We, we, he knows we're not perfect. We all know we're not perfect. That's okay. But we want to walk in obedience, right? We want to do what he wants. Again, not perfection, but a pattern of life. So here's the question. Commands. It says, walk in obedience. Obedience to what? What are the commands? You know how most Christians would answer that? What are the commands we're supposed to obey? The Ten Commandments. That's how many would answer that. Is that true? Do you know the Ten Commandments? (laughs) Right? One, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Honor your father and mother. Kids, did you hear that one? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Right? (laughs) Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Yeah, right? Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So, so these are the Ten Commandments. Is this what he's talking about when he says obedience to what? This, this law. Well, the, those Ten Commandments are part of the Mosaic law, the Jewish law, 
And there's 600 other ones not listed in those 10. And so if that's the answer, we need to obey all 600 and I think there's 612. So good luck with that one. One of those being do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. <laughs> true, true. And there was reasons for those, those laws. There was reasons for those, uh, you know, linking it to idolatry and things like that. So is the pastor right now saying that you do not have to obey the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I am. Because that's the Mosaic law. And the new covenant replaced the old covenant of law. Now we are made right with God because of Jesus' sacrifice. Does that mean the law is all gone? There's no more rules? Not at all. Now we do have moral law repeated in the New Testament. And guess what? Most of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. So I am going to say be obedient to what Jesus and the New Testament lays out which would be pretty much everything in the Ten Commandments and others. Again, not perfection. But how do we know these commands? Right? We want to walk in obedience. This is a heart change. You desire it. How do you know? Time in Scripture. Right? That's why last week, part of walking in the light is spending time in God's Word. God's Word reveals what He wants in our lives. Hebrews 4.12. If you don't have this verse memorized, you should. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word does spiritual surgery on us, right? It, it cuts us open. Maybe you've experienced this. You read it, and, and it reveals your intentions. Sometimes they're good, right? Sometimes we open this up, and what we just need is grace and love and mercy, and that's what we get. Sometimes we need conviction, and that's what we get. And so we go to God's word and we let it show us what he wants. And then obedience is, now I'm going to do that. I'm going to walk in line with this. Again, not perfectly, but a pattern. So do you have a pattern of spending time in God's word and then responding to what he reveals? Let it do this soul surgery. But now this is important. This type of obedience stems from a loving and abiding relationship with Jesus, not legalism. We like lists, right? And we as humans, why, why is uh, legalism so attractive? Because you give me a list of, 20, do these 20 things, and I guarantee your salvation. I'm going to go do those 20 things, and I'm going to be proud of myself, right? Or I'm going to fail, and then I'm going to feel miserable. No, we like those lists, and we need these lists, but we walk in obedience, right, out of a love relationship. And this is helpful. Look at verse 6. It says, whoever says he abides in him, that is Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Remember the, the bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? What happens in sanctification, right, as we walk in an abiding relationship with Jesus is he changes us to look like him. And so we start to live the way he lived. That is very important. Again, how many legalistic, rule-following
shining. All right. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What's the theme in that verse, in all those verses? Love. Love, right? So if we want evidence of salvation, there's three things. One, truth, right belief, right? Two, obedience, and three, love. All three of those go together. Again, if you have right belief, right, and uh, a lot of what looks like good obedience, but you really don't love anybody, there's a heart check there. Growing in love for God and others is evidence of a new heart, right? He writes here, I'm, I'm giving you an old commandment. It's not a new commandment, but Jesus called this a new commandment at times, and Jesus called this the greatest commandment. In Matthew, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. It comes down to love, right? So without even knowing all of the New Testament, none of us probably have it memorized, we can stand on this first, what is loving? First to God, and then to others. This is the great test of our salvation, is love. Do you love what God loves? Do you? Do you love fellow believers? Do you love other people? It is all summed up here. Now, again, there are, there are those uh, in American Christianity, even around the world, who lean on this, oh, God is love. Right? And, and that's it. And they end with that. God is love. Meaning, he'll let people just do what they want. You can't have the love without the truth. That's why that's, there's three parts of it. Truth, right belief, right? Obedience and love. Love is part of it. And he, here he, he hones in on hating your brother. Right? Do you ever feel those feelings of hate to fellow believers? Remember when we talked about the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill. That's one of them. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, repeats those and makes them harder. He took adultery and he made lust. We're, we're guilty of a heart condition of lust, looking at somebody who we're not married to and lusting. He took murder and said anybody who hates a brother is guilty of murder. You'll find this in Matthew. This is going to be weird. Matthew. <laughs> Matthew 5, 21 through 26, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The principle there is love for fellow believers primarily, not hate. So if you are at the altar and the, 
the best application of this is when we go to take the Lord's Supper, which we do every other week. If you're preparing to take the Lord's Supper and in your heart there's unforgiveness with the fellow believer, right here you would say, you need to go deal with that, right? Or do you have bitterness and, and hate towards somebody, toward others, that you're not dealing with? That's a sign of a heart condition. That's a sign that there's something you need to work on there. I think this is a good quote. It says, when we harbor an unforgiving and unloving spirit, we harm ourselves most. That's not what God has for us. So again, our goal here, though, is to get assurance of salvation. How can we be confident we are saved? And it's pretty simple, those three things, right belief, obedience, and then a heart of love. So this goes to a heart condition, because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Look at verse 12 through 14. He says, I'm writing to you little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children, because you know the father. I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Every single one of those verses there is giving assurance of salvation. I'm writing to you, children, that's probably new believers, right? You're forgiven. You belong to him. I'm writing to you, old men, you know, seasoned believers. Really, it looks like he's talking to to all of us in any phase of our Christian life, brand new, right, Or, or saved for 50 years, we can be confident in our salvation. Why? Because we know Jesus. It starts right there with right belief, with faith in the truth, but then it's evidenced through obedience and love. Again, we're not perfect, but as we walk in the light, we open ourselves up to what God would do. Again, the goal here is confidence. The goal here is assurance of salvation, but let's be honest. There's a flip side to that coin. Maybe you don't have assurance of salvation. Not everybody who claims to be a believer should have assurance of salvation. I remember I was uh, working at a place that had a cafeteria, and me and a friend would get together every Thursday morning. We'd read the Bible together, hold each other accountable, those things. We sat down one morning, and this other guy came, acquaintance, and, and sat with us. He said, what are you guys doing? We said, well, we're talking about Jesus. He's like, can I join you? Well, absolutely. Um, and we talked for a little while, and then he said, do you guys think I'm a Christian? Do you think I'm saved? I said, well, do you believe Jesus was the son of God, died on the cross and rose from the dead? I said, yeah, I've always believed that. I said, okay. Well, here's the second thing. You're living with your girlfriend. Is there anything wrong with that? He's like, no. I said, then I would say you should not have assurance in your salvation. He's like, "Uh, okay, I know it's wrong. I'm like, okay. Well, then I don't know. (laughs) I, I can't see your heart. That means you are walking in willful disobedience to what you know to be right. So there's a question there. And again, I can't judge his heart or somebody's heart, but the evidence there was he said he believed, but his life didn't show it at all. There was nothing in his life that showed it. And so that's a test for us. Again, two sides of the same coin. John's goal is to give us assurance. But if you're hearing those things, you're like, I don't have that assurance. Well, then as we move to worship, you need to come talk to me because you can have that assurance. You can be confident so that when that day comes, right, when we get to go to him, when we die or he returns, we can go before him with confidence. Not because we were good, right? Not because we obeyed, not because we went to church, but because our confidence was in Jesus Christ as the propitiation for our sins. 
we can stand before him with confidence. As I was kind of preparing this and thinking through, what's the application? You know, there's two. One, if you check your heart, I don't see those three things. I don't see right belief, obedience, or love. We need to check that. But for most of us, we look, yes, I'm struggling through those things. I'm not perfect, but I'm in process. Here's the result. It should be praise. You know, I love that song, Blessed Assurance. You know, we sang part of it already. Blessed Assurance, right? And so this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. I would have sung it, but that wouldn't stick as well. The goal is then praise. We are made to worship. And having this confidence leads us to exactly that, worship and praise. When we worship, when we praise, we are doing exactly what we were made to do. Why does it feel so right for us to get together, to hear God's word, and then to to praise him? Because it's what we're made to do, and it's what we're going to be doing for eternity. Not a church service, right? That sounds boring. But praise and worship in life with him for eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you that you give us the confidence. God, I do thank you that in your word, it's given to us not as a, hey, maybe, hopefully you're saved, or the other side, go work really hard to be saved, but that you give us confidence that you have done the work for us. God, we know we don't deserve it, but we thank you. God, our response is praise. Father, I ask right now, Holy Spirit, I ask for you to do something in every heart in this room. God, for those that belong to you, that you would fill them with confidence. You would fill them with assurance. You would fill them with the joy and the peace that comes from knowing you. God, if there's anybody in here who does not know you, I ask you right now to grab their heart and convict them that they today would be the day of salvation, that they could have assurance. God, that they could have confidence that when they meet you, you're going to look at them and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You're mine. God, do what you want to do in our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen.